Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Toro Golf. Two things tour pros hate, leaking oil down the stretch and their caddy having to quiet spectators. Golf course maintenance pros are the same, except they worry about literally leaking hydraulic oil and waking up the neighbors with early morning mowing routines. Toro's new Greensmaster e Triflex series riding greens mower solved both problems. The engine generator model is amazingly quiet in operation while the lithium-ion battery model is virtually silent. Both E-Triflex models carry no hydraulic fluid on board, using all-electric components for traction, steering, lift, and cutting. This means not only are potential leaks a thing of the past, but noise complaints are too. Follow at ToroGolf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Today's episode is with Josh Lewis, superintendent at Sharon Heights Golf and Country Club in Menlo Park, California. I was out in San Francisco just about a week ago. It's uh, crazy. Lots has changed in a week. Uh, Josh and I talk off the top about the coronavirus and how he's preparing. Since that time, San Francisco has essentially gone into lockdown. So, you know, they are just basically maintaining the golf course at as needed to keep the you know fine turfs alive and and well uh obviously tough time and uh everybody in the superintendent industry uh you know be safe out there use extra precaution i don't think that has to go without saying um and golfers alike you know social distance be be smart but Josh and I talk about a ton of different topics. He has a lot of great experience. He grew up in Coos Bay, Oregon, which is very close to uh, Banded Dunes and kind of got his start up at Coos Bay and, and with Banded Dunes. So we talk a ton about that resort and his getting into turf as well as his experiences at Pasa Tiempo and Chambers Bay for the U.S. Open. So without further ado, here is Josh Lewis. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Crazy times right now, Josh. Uh, Have you ever seen anything like this? No. Matter of fact, I talked to one of our members yesterday. His dad's uh, actually having his 100th birthday. He pitched that question to his dad, and his dad said he'd never seen anything like it. Um, interestingly enough, he was born in 1920, two years after the Spanish flu. So it's uh, nothing in my lifetime for sure. With you managing a team, obviously, I think that's people forget a lot of times with casual public uh, that – you know, you're superintendent, you're managing a big team. What do you got? 25, 30 people. What type of, uh, precautions for coronavirus have you guys put in place? Uh, A lot of it's education, um, you know, general cleanliness, you know, the typical stuff that everybody's doing, wiping down, advising on hand washing, all that type of stuff. But really for us, it's about caring for the people and being sensitive to the impacts in their lives outside of here and understanding that this is a chaotic time and just trying to be flexible, trying to be understanding on an anxiety level and things like that as well. So it's, there's a a psychological component too. Yeah, obviously a a club there's, I think like 
golf has the big vast acreage and the outdoors like make it a great escape for people but then there it also comes with the indoors and the the common use uh, facilities so it makes it tough it, it's a it's a good escape in some regards but then there are other aspects of of you know buildings and locker rooms and you know pro shops that make it an unideal place so it, it, it's really it's going to be a compelling thing to watch what happens the next couple of weeks with clubs across the country and uh obviously being in san francisco i think san francisco has been out in front of this more so than a lot of places with with the company policy which a lot of your members are involved with so i think you know that's that's something that i guess we're going to have to monitor the next, you know, couple of weeks, but it's, it's definitely an interesting time for the golf industry. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I think just in the last couple of days, we've been in contact with a lot of the area clubs as well as ourselves having meetings directly associated with this to decide what the best course of action is. I mean, let's be honest, nobody's got the roadmap for this. It's completely uncharted territory. So we're developing it as we go and trying to be conscious of that you know things changing by the day so we are forced into leadership roles and we have to make good decisions regardless of you know short-term outcomes the reality is is way bigger than any sport so yeah this that's the toughest thing about it is like looking at the short-term problems with it that come with it and being able to come to grips that like you're everybody everybody is going get to th- go through short-term pain unless you're like a, a hermit that enjoys being, you know, <laughs> stuck at home and all your money's in a mattress, yes. you know? <laughs> um, so let's, let's move on to a uh, more interesting subject, maybe not, uh, more, but, you know, a little bit lighthearted, more lighthearted subject. Yourself. We're going to talk about you. I uh, I was just up abandoned, so this is a timely time to have this conversation because I was getting uh, I was getting driven to pick up a rental car, and uh, I were drive we drove past Coos Bay, and I said to the guy uh, that was driving me up there, I was like, "Hey, what's that place like?" And he was like, "You know, I hear it's actually pretty cool. I hear it's got like a historic designer," and then. We're talking, and your first job out of golf was at Coos Bay. So Coos Bay is 30 minutes from Bandon on the way down from Portland. Everybody drives by it. And uh, tell us a little bit about Coos Bay. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Coos Bay, town. I mean, between Coos Bay and North Bend, I think it's like a total of about 30,000 people. So it's the largest town on the Oregon coast, which obviously doesn't say much we still had to drive two hours to get to a legitimate mall um you know no costco to raid for toilet paper you know i don't know what people are doing honestly at this point because um you know you can't find the stuff right so um but they had a great little you know originally it was a little nine hole h chandler egan um you know kind of one of those we talked about it as like uh you know mini Augusta kind of deal, you know, white sand bunkers, super fast greens, big trees, the whole bit. Um, they then added another nine holes. So it's 18 total now. 
um, you know, just a great little blue collar club, you know, um, it's gone through several iterations and it's, it's mutated a bit, but, um, the bones are still there. And, and, uh, ironically, some of the guys that I played high school golf with have actually ended up back there in management positions, you know, whether it be head pro GM type of scenarios. And, um, it's seen a really cool revitalization, especially with the caddy inputs from, um, from Bandon, you know, between Bandon crossings and, um, Coos golf club now is what they're calling it. But, um, tons of great, you know, weeknight games and things like that, that have really brought a heartbeat back to it. So it's pretty cool to see. What was it like watching, um, that being somebody in the area and watching the impact that Bandon had and like from, I guess, cradle or from the cradle to where it is now. Well, in all honesty, I mean, growing up in Coos Bay, we're like, oh, we're the big, you know, we're the big city on the coast. Right. So we, we all kind of looked at Bandon. It was always this cool little sleepy resort town, but it was never obviously what it is now. We knew that property was, we all felt at least like it was, um, it was just covered in gorse. It wasn't, you know, what is this? Like, you know, when it first started happening, we're like this guy from Chicago, crazy. Like that's, we, you know, again, having grown up there, you know, the history in the background and you're like, this isn't going to work, which is the reason that I'm where I am. And, you know, Mr. Kaiser is who he is and the genius that, that has occurred there. And, and, um, you know, again, one of the billion dollar ideas I've, uh, I missed on. So, um, but you're almost too close to it. Uh, maybe, yeah, I guess so. But it, uh, you know, my first, um, view of that whole thing was, of course, I grew up a golf nut playing high school golf, working on golf courses, things like that. But my dad was in concrete construction and one of our best family friends was actually worked for the general contractor that was building the lodge at the time. And they were in work trailers and the lodge wasn't there. Nothing was built. They had nine holes grassed abandoned. And I remember going down there with my dad when I was a young teenager and just looking through the trees at this golf course that was on the ocean going, this thing is incredible. You know, it was awesome. I didn't know anything about it, but I had this unique access because of a, a family friend, you know, several years before it even opened. And then just to watch the development of the property, to have worked there and been a part of that growth phase, and then to see what has really transpired in the community and the life that's been injected into a, a place where really the only income and industry there was logging and fishing. You know, there wasn't a huge tourist impact. Now it's, it's, that's the majority of what comes into that area. So it's completely shifted people's focus. I mean, just the social programs and the educational programs and the money that's been injected into the community from the Kaiser family, from Bannon Dunes, the amount of people they employ. I mean, it's, it's changed everything. So you're working at Coos Bay and you're watching Bandon just start getting built. And at that time you were in school, right? Or high school. school. So you're, you're watching that and you probably immediately are like, this is something I got to jump on and get involved with. Right. Yeah. I was intrigued. I mean, at that point, all I cared about was figuring out a way to get to the first tee. You know, really, it was like, get me through school get me out of class, 
get me on the golf course. I'll play till dark and I'm going to get up tomorrow and do the same thing. Right. So I was mostly concerned about figuring out a way to pay for my golf habit. And that's where summer work came in and, you know, got a job working on the golf course and whatever. Of course, as I went through high school, I got out of high school and I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do something with golf. Right. And I worked my butt off my senior year in high school and the year after I graduated and got down to, I was a plus one or something like that qualified to play in several of our, like, like we, our state amateur that year was at Pacific dunes. Right. And so I'm like, that's the tournament I want to make sure I get into and see, you know, I'm going to match myself up against some really good players. Right. That was very quickly apparent to me that I didn't exactly have that talent. So I was like, okay, at this point, after that summer, I went, what am I going to do for a career? Right. And the byproduct of that was I kind of fell in love with working on golf courses. And then at that point, you know, of course, Bannon had been built, opened. They just opened Pacific Dunes. You could kind of see the writing on the wall that this was success. And that's what drove me down there. What about working on golf courses did you fall in love with? I didn't have to be in an office every day, which ironically we're in an office right now doing this. But um, at that point, I got to work outside. I got to be up early. I got off early. I could be, I mean, literally I could work an eight-hour day or a nine-hour day and play another 27 holes. That was my whole motivation. At that, you know, once you get married and you have kids and things like that, that changes. But um, at that point, all I cared about was figuring out how to be able to play more golf. Um, and so it provided that. I was outside. I got to do physical labor. The people in the industry seemed pretty cool. And um, I liked the hours, and it was just, it was kind of in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I I think about that all the time. I A lot of times I wonder if that would have been a good job for me, you know? I just, <laughs> Would have always was liked being out early on golf courses. There's something special about the morning, um, and you get to do different jobs every day. So, you get you get involved with uh, Bandon, and your, your first job was working at Bandon Trails, right? Actually, Bandon Dunes. Dunes. Okay, so you're on the maintenance team uh, there. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, how much different was it working at Coos Bay? You know, a small town club to going to Bannon Dunes, a big resort, the kind of the culture of the team that you were working with and just the expectations. Yeah, I think the, I mean, to be fair, the culture at Bannon was still in its infant stage. Like they didn't really have, I think they knew what they wanted to be. They had a very clear vision, especially from the very top. I mean, the Kaisers have always known what they wanted out of that, but um, we were still developing what that, team culture was what that looked like um but just from an operational perspective i mean a small town club like most of the guys we worked with in the summer especially were either high school kids or, or college kids or whatever i mean there was a fair amount of fun happening you know that wasn't necessarily work related um but it was still a great experience then you get to abandon and you go, okay, this is a little different level. You could just tell, you know, and at that point it was super growth phase. I mean, it was a new golf course every two years, three years, whatever. Um, I mean, I showed up, uh, got employed to work on the, on, on the original Bannon Dunes golf course 
And I didn't see the golf course for six weeks because we were renovating the practice facility. And my introduction to the resort was laying 16,000 pavers by hand, you know, paths that go through there and laying, you know, four acres of sod, taking, you know, sod out of parking lots, putting it back on range tees. I mean, I was loving every minute of it, but I didn't see the golf course that I got hired to work on literally for six weeks. So that was just the way we did it. Like you went crazy in the summer with just maintaining golf courses. And then every winter was a construction project or a renovation or a new golf course. And it's just incredible. Yeah. That the change, the constant changing, like the no monotony had to be so awesome. You probably learned so much. It was almost like you're I mean, you were part of like a startup environment. Like a lot of your members here are very successful tech entrepreneurs that started companies and from nothing to really big things. And and you were essentially an early member of one of golf's most successful startups. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's exactly what it is. And that was the startup culture. I mean, everybody, it was, it was, I mean, from the minute that I got there, it was, you know, well, who's going to go to the next golf course? You know, who's going to be the next superintendent over there? Who's, who's going to follow them to construction, you know? And that was the way it was my entire time there. And it was just awesome. And to be honest, I had zero idea what valuable experience I was getting. Like, I didn't know. I was having a great time. And you were learning how to do everything, like way beyond your Oh, I'm, I'm 19, 20 years old and I'm jumping on bulldozers and I'm, I'm working on, you know, I'm, I'm doing heavy construction. Like we're building golf courses. We did everything in house there. We didn't contract anything out. So I'm doing irrigation installation. I'm doing, I'm building greens. I'm, you know, it's like, I didn't think anything of it cause I'd grown up with the construction industry with my dad. And I was like, Oh, this is what every golf course is like. But yeah, that wasn't the case. I'll never forget. I, I took a job my second big like big job was I went to a young startup and it was really small at the time and you know I was like one of the first 20 employees and I remember it work changed where it was really a unbelievable thing that I was you know I work was working harder than I ever had in my life and and I was like excited to go into work is that the way you kind of felt out there oh I loved every minute of it I couldn't wait to go in and see what new was going to happen or, uh, you know, who was going to be there that day. I mean, at that point it was so new and so fresh that everybody had to see it, right? They had to experience it. And so you've got people like Arnold Palmer coming in. You've got Tom Watson showing up. You've got Michael Jordan. You've got, you know, Bill Russell. You've got all these people. And it was literally every day, especially during the golf season, somebody new was showing up and you're like, this is still banned in Oregon. You know, these people aren't supposed to be coming here, but they are. And they're being drawn by a golf course. It was just surreal. It probably was even more like refreshing and cool being somebody that grew up in the area. It still is. Every time I see, you know, something coming out, whether it be print media, social media, whatever, it's like, it's still a little strange because there's a ton of pride there. I mean, you know, and even going back, like being on the construction at Bannon Trails, every time I see a photo of that or every time I see an article or whatever, I'm like, yeah, you know, we, we actually, we built that. Like, I remember, you know, 
hand raking that little bump behind the third green with Dave Zinkend. Like, I remember that. Like, that is a, I'm, nobody can ever take that away, you know? Talk about the construction of banded trails. That, I think the thing I took away from Bandon is I just loved how every property had its own unique identity within the same resort. And to me, of all the properties, that one had the the most, the strongest identity and char- like really character. I mean, it is the only one that's not on the ocean yet. I feel like it, of it just left something lasting in my like. It's something about how everything there ties in together that really makes it. And I imagine there was a lot of thought behind how that course was laid out during the construction process. Yeah, I mean, I that was my first experience with that property was actually. I mean, again, we have this conversation, right? I was at Bannon Dunes for a year, and the only thing anybody wanted to talk about was who's going to go over to Trails Construction. Right. And so I put my name in the hat really early. I was like, I want to do that. That sounds awesome. So I was involved from like originally, I mean, I remember cutting sight lines for like the ninth hole and we're in, you know, just 12 feet of underbrush with chainsaws, like trying to get tunnels cut through and open things up so that guys could see, you know, turn points and T locations and things like that. So that's when, I mean, it was nothing but brush and trees when I first got over there. And then taking it from that to literally opening day, you know, with Mr. Kaiser and Mr. Kernshaw and Mr. Corsan on the first tee handing out, you know, opening day coins to everybody and signing scorecards. It's like, again, I had zero idea what experience I was actually getting. I mean, being able to walk, you know, the fourth fairway and talk about that ridge that cuts through that hole side by side with Mr. Crenshaw is like, and he's, we're having a conversation, he and me, and he took time to have a conversation with a 20, 21 year old kid that was just a golf fan, right? That is an impression that was made on me that will never go away. And that's when I kind of started to think about architecture and I started to think about things a little bit differently and, you know, having conversations with Dave Zinkend about like, you know, what do we want this landform to look like? Like, what do we want this finish shaping to look like? And I remember he just looked over at this dune between, um, that dune that's between kind of the fourth tee and the third green. And he said, we just want it to look like that, make it look like that. And I'm like, that's so simple yet. It's genius. You know, and, and all those guys, that team that was put together, you know, whether it was Jim Craig or Dave Axland or whoever, and you just go, the things that I was able to absorb and soak in that I still look back on, even not just architecture construction, but how to treat people. You know, when you look at people like Bill Kerr and Ben Crenshaw and the fact that they would take time out of their day to have a conversation with some kid that they don't even know, that's that's been a lasting impression on me. You know, and that's changed the way I've approached things in my life. You never know who you're going to impact, right? But that experience has been an incredible draw for me. I mean, we're sitting here in an office and i still have the team photo that's signed by Ben Crenshaw and Bill Kerr on my wall. Like it, it, it's a really neat thing that I still draw from, you know, but, um, it's been really neat to see that golf course develop and change. And like you said, when we first built it and it was opened, it wasn't people's 
favorite golf course by a long shot. Like it was significantly underrated in my opinion. And as the golf course has aged, it's really become um, not only one of people's favorites, but people really have looked at it from a technical standpoint and gone, man, this is, this is incredible architecture, incredible routing. That the routing I, is something that I was really amazed at. The, I think the first you talked about three and four. That was obviously a moment in the round. Like you know, for you get that first impression. Blake Conant talked about how Tom Doak always talks about you have to make an impression on the first uh, five holes. And standing on three T, I was like, whoa. And then you get to four and you have that massive ridge cascading down. And you're like, man. And then I thought one of the things I was most impressed about was the way the routing connects the long walks, how seamless the long walks are and the, the feel of those walks. Like you're not, you don't mind having to walk a little bit between holes out there. And then all of a sudden you start to feel yourself almost like figure eighting around a property. Well, and I still use that to this day, right? And it's the um, kind of the way we talk about it is, you know, around a golf is a journey. And it's a journey that begins the minute you honestly, in, in the private club world, it's the minute that you pull into the parking lot. It's the level of service that you get. It's the level of experience you get from that point to the golf shop to the first tee, how you move through the property. That was the first instance for me when that really clicked. Like, yes, it's about, you know, the tee shot and it's about the approach shot and it's about bunker positioning, things like that. But those walks from green to tee on that golf course are so important in understanding the journey that is Bannon Trails from, you know, the first tee to the 18th green and the way those holes connect. And yeah, some of those holes, some of those walks are long, like, Originally, they didn't have a cart that took you from 13 green to 14 T. You got to walk. And I remember building that trail, that path. It wasn't necessarily that road. There was actually a trail that went up and it was a great little trail. I, I took that trail because I was out there walking late and I took the trail up. It was an incredible walk. Yeah, it was a great walk. We built this super cool little serpentine deal and it was awesome. And then they're like, that's still too hard. And we're like, yeah, it kind of is, you know? So they, they have the, the service guy there now that does that. But, but those connectors on a golf course that is routed, frankly, on a tough piece of property with that giant dune that runs between those, we call them the forest holes and the meadow holes, but, um, it's masterful how it goes around the end and then it comes up over the top and you have, you know, figuring out a way to make those walks from greens to tees, part of the round is part of the genius of the routing, right? Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. Cause that there's a, I'm playing this round and I, I, I teed off at like five o'clock and you know, I just was flying, you know, nobody out in front of me. And I mean, I was done at seven fifteen, but I remember, you know, I'm just booking it hole after hole. I'm just playing. It was, it was one of those experiences that, Sometimes I feel like when you work in golf, you can deplete your golf soul a little bit, like where you get you're you're so because it's your job. And I think this is a difference between what people don't realize about industry. And I didn't realize before I got into it and then got really busy in it is that like working in golf, 
changes your relationship personally with golf. That's a super underrated viewpoint. It really does. And that round had like one of was one of those moments where I felt like my youthful golf soul like reignited in a way where I was out by myself, which was like it reminded me of the way I used to play as a kid, like chasing daylight. And that walk from 13 up to 14 and, you know, I'm playing really fast and I want to get it done. I got to record a podcast when I get done playing. And literally I got up to the top of that hill and I just like sat there for like five minutes because I was like, this is, and the sun was just beaming down. It was a perfect night, like through the trees. And it, that, that whole, the trail system through that course, I think makes the experience because of the way the trails were almost constructed to make it just feel like a, it, it was incredible. I, I can't talk enough about <laughs> trails, but, um, well, you so see the same thing at like a, a great, you know, you see the same thing at, um, Cypress point, for instance, right? Some of the greatest walks from greens to tees and you have these, there's like several, I can, I mean, again, we could talk about this forever. It's a super undervalued aspect of a great golf course. These like aha moments, right? I'm never going to forget the first time I come around the corner on 15 T at Cyprus. I'm never going to forget that moment. Like it just, your, your mind is opened to things that aren't even golf related. Right. I think there's also one when you're on five T at Cyprus, like when you turn the corner on five T and it's like, you that par five where you just are looking at the the bunkering and everything on that hole without back. a doubt without a doubt it's like uh walking from um walking from the seventh green to the eighth tee yeah turn in the corner and you know you hit your eighth tee shot and you don't know where the golf ball is supposed to be oh just aim it you know just keep it left to the little the little scrub pine on the top of the hill there right you get you turn that corner on eight and you're like really like this is a golf hole are you kidding me mind blown you know so those all those little walks it it just changes everything right with the golf round so you're you're getting this great experience and you you might not have been fully aware of everything you were learning at the time and but with that regard how have you has it have you has it shaped or changed the way you've done anything where you've you know, enhance the walking experience at a course that you've worked at. Oh, for sure. I mean, that was one of the things, you know, even in coming to my current position where we've talked about this a lot, you know, when you talk about what, you know, think about your top five best golf experiences you've ever had. Right. And how it really is, you know, your day becomes a story or becomes a journey. Right. And it's, Again, in the private club world, it's, it's well, and, and frankly, abandoned. I mean, it's one of the best service experiences you're ever going to get, you know, whether it's in the restaurant or the shuttle driver or your, your hotel concierge or whoever, right? It's the same thing here where our focus is really about your experience as a whole, whether it's from the minute you pull in the parking lot to finishing your round to having a great meal a great drink, you know, being greeted properly, um, all of those things. It's one big long journey. And 
you know, when you, like in my case, we really focus heavily on attention to detail. There's a thousand things that occur on a golf course every day on great golf courses that golfers aren't going to notice if they're not done. They're not going to notice. They're not going to notice if every edge isn't perfect or every, you know, uh, landscape bed isn't perfectly weeded or perfectly maintained or, or bunkers aren't raked a certain way. They're not necessarily going to notice all those things. They're going to notice green speeds and firmness and things like that. But all those little details, you don't know why a round of golf is better. You just know it is, right? They're not going to see it. We're paid to see it. We're paid to understand that and to address it. But when all those little things are right, you get done with your round and you're like, why was it better? I don't know why it was better, but it was just exceptional, right? Mm -hmm. And great golf courses, highly maintained, whether you're looking at it from a architecture perspective like you would at the Bannon courses or you're looking at it, you know, the Madison Club or the Vintage or, or um, you know, Augusta or, or any endless golf courses you could talk about, great places, but you, the average golfer isn't going to notice a lot of those little things, but when it's all addressed and it's all in its place and it's all right, they just know it's better. And that's what we kind of talk about here. Now for a quick break from our sponsor. For more than a century with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Now back to Josh Lewis. How much tougher is it? You've you've worked at Pasa Tiempo, Bandon course, uh, the Bandon courses, um, Chambers Bay. How much tougher is it to do to have that? level of attention to detail at a course that has, you know, high volume of golf being played at. It's difficult. I mean, it's just different, right? One of my good buddies is, um, Brian Palmer, right? And me and BP talk about this all the time. Now he's at Terry Eady's spent some time in the sand belt. I mean, talk about living the dream, but there's this you know, with abandoned courses, with Pasatiempo, with that more natural look, that kind of that rugged look, um, Chambers was the same thing. You, there's this balance, right, of high attention to detail without losing the natural appeal of the land and the, and the sand forms and all these other things. And I remember he, uh, Brian, messaged me after he got to visit Royal Melbourne and, and Kingston Heath and a couple of the top sandbelt courses. And he goes, I found the Holy Grail. He's like, these guys have figured out the perfect balance between exceptional attention to detail and maintaining a natural appearance to the golf course. It's one of the hardest things to do is to balance the natural appearance. Don't, you know, don't take away from that sand dune. Don't take away from that rugged bunker edge. If that, if that edge collapses, you know, clean it up and make it look like that was the way it was supposed to be, right? I remember Tom Doak talking about um, Pacific Dunes and even Old MacDonald in the fact that, you know, they construct these golf courses and they look incredible. And he's like, yeah, but it won't look good for like two to three seasons. It needs to weather. I'm like, a golf course needs to weather? 
And yeah, the wind needs to blow it around. It needs to blow the sand around. Some of those edges need to crumble and collapse and things like that. But how you maintain those things and that balance between attention to detail and natural and rugged appearance, it's like one of the hardest things to do in golf at a high level. It's almost like when you get a pair of jeans and like the first time you wear them, they're a little bit, you know, and and then the, the more and more you wear them, the better and better they, they just feel. And the, you know, that is probably, and I think a lot of people are afraid of that new, like they have some work done and it looks new and people love that new look. And then they don't like when it goes away from that. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, we've seen that with, we saw that with Chambers, we saw that with Bandon and things like that. And there's, there's a certain group, you know, Bandon's got groups that have been coming for, you know, 18, 19 years in a row. And they're just, they love it. And it's this buddy trip they do every year and they're just embraced. Well, there was also a time where a lot of people would show up and just not get it. They're like, what do you mean brown fairways? I don't understand. You know, what do you mean that bunker's not raked perfectly? Greens are only rolling, you know, nine and a half in the morning. I don't understand. Well, it's like, well, because by one o'clock with the wind, they're going to roll 12 and you won't be able to play them. So we had that, there was always that, um, that scenario where some people just didn't want to embrace it and that's okay. It's not their style, you know, but they're to a point now to where there's still a lot of people out there. And I, and I credit what the Kaisers have done. I credit with some of the, the other developers have done in, really presenting that style of golf there's been a huge educational period with that with the golfing public and their eyes have been opened and their minds have been opened my my mind was opened right during construction phases and working there um to what the possibilities are and every edge doesn't necessarily have to be perfect you know that being said the world i work in now it's a different attention to detail Every edge is, per, you know, does need to be perfect. We do need to have every weed. We do need to have all that stuff needs to be pristine. It's it's just a bit of a shift. Yeah, talk a little bit about the transition from, you know, high-end resort. You know, Pasatiempo is one of the most unique places with the, with the dynamic there, with the public and the private model. And then you're at Chambers Bay, which is, you know, essentially is it municipal technically you know yeah. a, a municipal high high round volume champion you know u.s open yeah. and then you come and do the private thing so what was it like going from you know essentially high highest volume you could get to and public to this the private culture in san francisco well i think you know, I guess the way I look at it, it might be a little bit different from some in that I like to challenge myself constantly. New, new things. Totally. And so, you know, I start out at a, a you know, blue collar pub, you know, private golf course, right? Then you go to the highest end resort you can get to between them and Pebble. Like that's pretty much it. Um, really developed there over the course of about seven years. And then, like you said, once I finished school at Oregon State, um, spent a, about 10 months at Eugene Country Club kind of interning, things like that. That's where I got my first taste of more of the high-end private. And then, you know, and then ending, ending up at Pasatiempo as an assistant kind of after graduation. Again, from there to, you know, 
crazy high-end municipal championship level at Chambers Bay, and then, and of course, coming back to high-end private. Every single um, move, right, has presented its own level of challenges and things that you have to make adjustments to. There's no greater challenge or less challenge at any one place. It's just different levels of challenge, you know, different types of challenge, right? Um, it's it's really not as different as you would think, in all honesty. People are the same. People are people. You know, it's basically: do you want to deal with not having constant contact in the public realm? You know, that was part of our challenge: is that you just didn't have that relationship ability to build those over time, like you do in the private side. That being said, there's challenges associated with that too. You know, and people play the same golf course multiple times a week, you know, so they're seeing every little change that happens. So I think it's on the one hand, it's, it's been great for me because it's made me a little eclectic, I guess, in this industry and having touched on a lot of different things, but well-rounded. that's a, yeah. I like that. I like that term. Well-rounded. Yeah, absolutely. It's because it, I, I think about this a lot and I'm, I think working outside of golf really helps me with golf because I have that experience perspective for you when you're, you can talk to any superintendent and really have some sort of, some level of empathy for what they're going through because you've worked at every type of facility, which is, so what, I guess, what would you say is like, if you look through, you've been a lot of places, you've done a lot you've had a lot of crazy experiences, you know, in this time, like what was, if you could synthesize like one big takeaway that you took from each of these spots, what would it be? That's a big question. That's a big question. Um, be humble. I think that's part of, that's something that transcends every job in turf, no matter what. Like one of the reasons I love working in turf and working in nature is because it doesn't care. It doesn't care what your net worth is. It doesn't care how good looking you are. It doesn't care. I mean, that, none of it matters. I mean, this year was a perfect example in Northern California, right? We had effectively no winter. So from about January 10th or so, we haven't had rain. We haven't had, we've had 70 plus degrees. Um, the trees bloomed a month early. The turf was reacting in February, like it reacts in April. Um, you know, we're hand watering all winter, like having conversations with people. I said, you know, you do realize grass doesn't have a calendar. It doesn't care. None of it matters. So, I think in every place and every position I've ever been, and I have had opportunities to work for some incredible people in this business and work around them and have people around me <clears throat> that are, you know, some of the top industry folks. That's been the one takeaway is in everything you do, stay humble because as good as it is one day, it can be equally bad the next. I totally, I feel like that's like, 
totally turf where you can because you get those those weeks where you probably feel like you're on top of the world when the weather's been good and the course is playing just right the way you want it. Every member loves it, and then you just have these weather events that just that pop in and and can just so with with the rain. Obviously, being in an area that goes through really big droughts, you know, the lack of rain in, in these winter months has to be pretty concerning. Yeah, I mean, it, unfortunately, we've gotten to be, and, and again, I mean, I'm not a California native. I come from one of the wettest parts of the country in the Northwest, but um, between Pasatiempo and now this this time down here, I've, I think I've lived in California for seven or eight years now total. So I've gotten a pretty good sample size and I have some great friends who have been here a lot longer, but it's kind of become the norm. We've had to get used to this. I mean, when it kind of turned off in January, we're like, all right, here we go. It's one of those winters, you know, and you just kind of buckle in and you go and, um, it is what it is. It's no different than the challenges that, um, you know, guys face with too much rain. You know, I listened to, I had to do some homework for this podcast. So of course a good buddy of mine's Matthew Wharton. And so I was listening to his podcast that you guys did at GIS and, you know, here he is talking about just getting pummeled with rain, just stupid amounts of rain and, you know, high humidity and, um, you know, all these other things. Well, we don't have to deal with that here. We get to deal with 215 plus days a year straight without any rain. You know, and so we become very good irrigators. We become very good, you know, everything has to be adjusted. Every head has to be perfect, every, everything. So when we get into these situations, our biggest concern is that we can usually handle one of these winters. But if we get into a situation like we did a few years ago where we had, you know, five-year drought where we were getting, you know, these guys were getting, I wasn't here at the time I was at Chambers, but they were getting, you know, four inches of rain for, for a year. It's like, then you start to deal with a lot of government interactions, a lot of restrictions, mandatory things like that. Guys getting shut off. Guys, you know, it's it's a different ball game then. So, yeah, we're concerned. Be a lot more concerned if we get another one of these winters next year, because that's when a lot of this stuff's going to start to come come crashing down. That's it. Just compiles and everything, kind of. Yeah, and it makes sense, it's especially with how do you, how do you being in a spot where you don't get a lot of water? How do you toe the line between presenting the course with you know what members want versus like the sustainability arm of 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 golf? That's the another big question. Um, I I think it comes back to education. You know, it's a constant conversation. And, you know, I'm fortunate to be at a place like this that have given a lot of thought for many, many years to our biggest issue here, our biggest natural resource issue, which is water. Um, you know, really, I think water independence is a huge thing. Getting off of potable water, getting, you know, in California, that's been a huge, huge push, not just from regulatory agencies and governments and things like that, but superintendents have really pushed hard to do what's right, you know, and whether that's an educational process with a membership or with their golfing public, with their ownership, whatever, um, they've been advocates for becoming more sustainable with that. So we're not there yet. We're not perfect, but we're definitely getting there. 
And um, it, it is a balance because the expectations are through the roof for turf conditions and playability and things like that. And then because we do live in a 12-month golf market where people have the same expectations, you know, you have a dry winter, the expectations are the golf course is as good in January and February as it is in, you know, June or July. So the expectations are high, um, as they should be, because it's, it's, um, that's the climate here, whether we're talking about golf or we're talking about business or we're talking about, you know, progressive thinking or whatever. It's just a, it's a high energy locale. How do you, have you seen the culture around golf, the expectations of golfers change because of the popularity of places like Bandon? Chambers Bay would come to mind in the sense of the Brown and then even like places like Shinnecock, you know, restoring courses. Have, do you, do you feel in your time in the industry that people have become more open to less irrigated courses and, and more naturally presented courses? Not really. I mean, unfortunately, I think there's we always used to have this conversation at Bandon and Chambers both, right? And I used to have some good buddies in the private club world and, and whatnot in Seattle and Tacoma area. And we'd always have these chats about, you know, well, it's okay at Chambers, but it's not okay at, you know, XYZ club. The same person can go play Chambers or Bandon and just be in love with it and go home and it's, you know, that brown spot's not supposed to be there or that bunker's not perfectly raked. I don't think it's what I've, I guess the realization I've come to is I don't think it's there. I don't think that's necessarily bad. I don't think that's their fault. I don't think it's, you know, a lack of golf IQ or anything else. I think it's when they go to those places, they're good with it because it's a departure. It's a trip. It's a, it's an event. It's a, a, a time that's out of their normal routine in their normal routine, they want what they know. They want, you know, they want edges, they want green, they want this, they want that. Um, you know, there's a small percentage of people that have really embraced that. And you see clubs like Ballyneal or, um, you know, Sand Hills or Cal, Cal, Cal Club. You know, and that's a conversation we have all the time as we look at, you know, clubs in the area on the peninsula here up into the city. And, and you know, the reality is, is that, Cal Club has just owned what they are. They love it, and that's and the membership has embraced it, and the people that are there love it, and and that's great. And it's not necessarily what our membership wants, and that's okay, you know. Um, I think the biggest thing is understand who you are, know what your identity is, understand your identity as a club or as a golf course or as a resort or whatever, and be the best you you can be. And whatever people want, they're going to gravitate to that, you know, but don't blame people or, or throw people under the bus because they can't embrace, you know, not everybody's going to love that look. That's okay. You know? Yeah. I mean, and that's like the thing I think that people gets lost is like, there is market for everything, you know, in golf, like. It, it's just the same way as like, I might not like a restaurant, but I like a, another restaurant. We, we might disagree on which one's better, but that's okay. That's okay. 
And it's it's so weird because golf has got this like it, it it's like if you say something that's at all critical, people it's like you're criticizing their firstborn child. Oh yeah. <laughs> and what I, I it, it's just a it's a really just the role golf has in people's lives and the way it is it, it's unlike any other industry really. Um, in the, in the sense of pride somebody has in their home course, it's not, they don't carry that same sense of pride in so many other aspects of their life. Um, and it, so let's talk a little bit about chambers and, and we, we you touched on it earlier, like with that, with the conditioning, the Brown and how hard was it dealing with people that just like would come there and think you were doing like a bad job because it was brown and and you know like in in a way like that just the 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 misunderstanding of what it was supposed to be like in in a sense you're doing a great job but the vast majority of people thought golf should be something that nice that high-end golf was something else than what you were presenting um i think that you know you talk about the takeaways from each place i've ever been right and one of the biggest takeaways from that scenario and, and Bandon, frankly, was exactly what you just referenced, is that we can have different opinions on what greatness looks like or what good is, and that's okay. Like, I think that's one of the benefits that I've got in having worked in all facets of golf is that I can have a conversation with somebody about you know, perfectly green, lush, ryegrass, you know, whatever. And then I can go have a conversation with somebody about, you know, fine fescue and firm and fast and rugged and playability and all this other stuff. Um, I think what happens over time, at first it used to really bother me. It's like, guy just doesn't get it. Then I'm like, difference does it make? Like, it doesn't matter. Um, The bottom line here is, is that um, people aren't always going to agree. And that's okay, whether it's politics, whether it's restaurants, whether it's life choices, or whether it's golf. Policies on coronavirus. Policies on coronavirus. It's, you know, hey, if, what, would, what would the world be if we didn't have great polarizing conversations to have, right? Um, you know, the interesting thing about Chambers was is I, I was able to develop some really cool relationships via social media with – um, you know, some of the, some of the great greenkeepers in the UK over the course of that time. Cause we had a lot of similarities, right? And a lot of times I'm like, I've got fine fescue questions or whatever. And who am I going to reach out to? Well, <laughs> probably reach out to the guys over there. So I built great relationships leading up to that. Um, even to the point that, you know, uh, the old course was hosting the open championship in 2015 when we were hosting the U S open. So we were prepping on the same timeline. So I had some great conversations with them. And I remember a message that I got kind of during the US Open and how the golf course was presented and all of the chaos surrounding it and everybody freaking out about what it looked like on TV. Gary Player. Uh, Gary, Gary Player, yeah. Well, you're really dredging up some great memories for me, Andy. Uh, so glad I did this. Um, but generally speaking, like, I remember walking the golf course in the evening and then going in and looking at it on TV and I'm like, it's not the same place. 
I mean, it looked completely different in person from what it was, what it looked like on TV, whether it be filters, whether whatever, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But there's nothing quite like when the when the tour or the TV drops down the saturation filter. It just pops the saturation up, jacks it up. They did did a Trinity Forest. The contrast is off, right? Whatever. It's like you know, talk with those guys in the trailer, Um, but. But we were looking at it from a fescue presentation going, you know, I mean, those fairways were about as perfect as it gets from what we were trying to present. It was great, right? Um, I mean, the proof was in what the player, like when you heard the player caddy conversations that week, it was incredible because they were talking about trajectory, where the ball was going to land. And the shape of the shot going into it, which is, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate presentation because it's literally every single factor of the golf shot had to be measured in order to hit a great golf shot. Well, and that was exactly right. And and I, I mean, I've gone full circle on this thing. I refuse to be defensive about what we did because I think we nailed it personally. But it is what it is there are several factors that add up to that. The one thing you can't argue with is that leaderboard. I mean, the leaderboard spoke for itself. It was, it was loaded. Uh, You know, the top 20, I want to say there was like 12 of the top 20 in the top 20 of the tournament or something crazy like that. Um, Arguably the best finish. Super exciting. Like, I mean, when you really break it down, what are you going to, you know, that's how you gauge a championship. But regardless of that, in my conversations with um, with the guys over overseas, I mean, I remember a message that I got, and he said, "Fantastic, you guys crushed it. Nobody's going to understand it, but you guys nailed it." And that was exactly it. Nobody understood it, and it was just, it just, you know, if you talk about this situation, you know, in a massive drought twenty years from now, maybe chemicals get restricted, maybe fertilizer applications get restricted maybe water use gets restricted and all of a sudden people are going back oh maybe they were just way ahead of their time in that presentation right and talking with like gordon he was having a year at the old course where they were just getting pummeled with rain right and he goes you guys got crushed because you had a hot dry spring and the golf course was brown which is exactly what you honestly wanted to present he goes you watch he goes we're going to get crucified because the golf course is too green and soft and it's all been cause of rain and there's nothing we can do. And it's exactly how it played out, you know? So it's, it's all about, it's all about, you know, opinions. And to your point, like whether we're talking golf course architecture, or golf course presentation or PGA tour versus USGA versus PGA of America, everybody's got their opinions and we all want to have spirited conversation. And I would just wish that as a group, we could all just get along to a point that we can disagree and still be friends. I think that's the the thing you touched on is that you Chambers pushed the conventions of what a US Open is supposed to be in people's minds to a extreme. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you're going to get polarizing and and there's going to be people that love it and then it would you touch is ironically like you essentially were the open championship and they 
had the playing conditions that like of probably what we'll see at, at Wingfoot because it's going to rain in Westchester County in in, in June. Like it's just going to happen. We're going to have a soft, lush course. Like that, you just happen to be in a situation. And and the other aspect of it is like this, if this is our U.S. Open, U.S. Open, our U.S. Championship, with the way our country is constructed and the different grasses and climate zones of the country, there should be huge variety in the way these courses are presented because each of them should represent a different part of the country. Absolutely. Well, and that's and that's exactly it, and that's what people miss with golf, and and honestly, golf course presentation, right, is that part of the beauty of golf is the variability from day to day, from hole to hole. I mean, we used to see, we used to joke around in, when I was at Band in, in particular, because it was very, it was very common for us to literally get four seasons in a day. We'd get sun, we'd get rain, we'd get hail, we'd get a little snow, we'd get wind, we'd get, and it's like, in the course of a four or five hour round of golf, all of a sudden, like you're getting wind direction changes. You're getting, you could play the same golf course every day and get a different golf course every day. That's awesome, right? Why would you want to play? I mean, we have this conversation all the time about golf course setup, right? Par three, like par three setup in particular. I've had this conversation with members historically, not at this club, but prior clubs. And they're like, you know, I paced off uh, the par threes today and they were, they were like five yards off the marker. And I went, yeah, sometimes I'm even going to put the markers on different T decks completely. Well, you can't do that. It messes with the slope and rating. And I said, no, it really doesn't. I said, why would you want to hit an eight iron every single time that you play that par three? You want some variability in golf. That's a good thing. We want some unknowns. We want it's it's a nature game, right? And that's the thing about Lynx golf to me that's so great is that you could land a shot, you know, you're never playing to the cup. You're playing to where you want the ball to land and then where you want the ball to end up after bounce and roll, right? So um, I was giving you grief on Twitter about your your contour video the other day, but that's the reality. You can hit, you can play the same golf hole, hit two beautiful shots into a great par four, land the ball two feet one direction or the other, ended up with a completely different outcome, right? Because it might have bounced... 20 yards left because you hit the wrong side of a bump or you know hey it didn't rain today it rained yesterday it was a little firmer a little softer why is that a bad thing you know yeah I, you want a place at that's why i always i was walking around with a superintendent in chicago a couple years ago and we were just talking about his golf course which i had played a few times in tournaments they had this really tough par three, but it had this cool back bowl. And I was like, and we were, I played it, you know, late night, one night. And me and my buddies had played earlier and we played it as like 120 yard from the forward tee yeah. par three. And the pin was in the bowl and literally we had two balls lip out and I was telling them about it. And I was like, you, you guys got to use that as like a tee for like your invitational. And he's like, members would freak out i'm like would they freak out when like three people get hole in ones and the, just, the course is just a riot for the day like like being able to do that like the flexibility like i'd love to see us get to a place where sometimes the back tee 
is ahead of the forward tee on a given hole because you're trying to make the variability. That's something like with my events we do that I try and do is like, I try and use like almost uh, like different tees on the back. Cause I want people to play a hole one day as uh, one round as 440 and the next round is 350 just to show how if his green's really interesting it's like so much different playing it with different shots into it and and that's the thing that people lose is like it's only going to make the game more interesting the more variety that you're able to to establish so, something we were just talking about that um it triggered is is Garrett, our managing editor, just did this great podcast on uh, sense of place, and it, the superintendent's role in establishing a a golf course's sense of place is so huge. I mean, in working at Bandon, and I think that's the thing that Trails excels at so much. Like, how have you kind of gone about establishing, like, thinking of sense of place as you go around? Well, <clears throat> I think, you know, we have this conversation about about scale a lot, right? And, you know, in that, in that kind of that dark, dark, the dark ages of golf course architecture, right? That 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, um, there seems to have been a loss of that concept, right? It was all about let's get these golf courses in around these home sites and, and make this all work. So that's something that I look at here, you know, even from an, an understanding, we have a lot of, you know, established redwood trees and, and some native oaks and things like that. And in these, and in these areas, it's even just even thinking about what, you know, what the, what the size of the mulch area and the tree well should be underneath in comparison to how much rough you have and how much fairway you have and what the green sizes are and, how everything just kind of fits together, right? And that and you're you're dealing with what I think people forget is like those redwoods create a massive vertical scale, which makes it hard to fit make everything else fit and look appropriate. Oh, completely. Completely. And and you that's a great point. When you think about when you think about scale on a three dimensional level, right? And so you know, and that and that presentation, like uh, there's been a project here the last couple of years to raise a lot of the skirts of the trees up to improve air movement, to kind of open up some views, things like that. Even if we're not necessarily removing the trees, we can we can clean them up to where you can see through. Um, and just that in itself has changed scale and presentation on the golf course, like what the feel is, how how sound moves through the property, how. Um, you know, you can yell across at the fairway across from you at your buddy, you know, and, and talk trash in your money game or whatever. You know, it's like all those things kind of figure into it, in my opinion. But when you look at the great golf course architecture out there, and I mean, Trails is a great example of that. Everything out there just works together. It just works together. Whether it's the naturalized native areas that we spent a year revegetating or the bunkers that are built that have now, you know, been windblown and weathered and, you know, it, it all just works, you know, you see that across the, across the board though, in great architecture. Yeah, it does all work together. And I think that it, it all works together though with like, you go to some places that 
I went to a place that opened a couple of years ago and it was like fantastic when it opened, but the maintenance, and I think it was more of an ownership mentality maintenance where they had other golf courses and those other golf courses are maintained and presented a certain way. And they took this golf course and tried to put them in a box. And then you, I went back and I just like, you know, it only been a couple of years and I just was astonished. I like it. I couldn't believe. And that's where I think, what you're talking about with like how you're thinking about the scale is so important because like each property is so different. Like, and there's no uniform way to get there because everything like what you're dealing with redwood trees, like you can't, you know, like sheep ranch, for example, which has basically no trees, you know, outside of a couple is not going to like they, you can't present your course the way they did. And I, and I think that's one of the, one of the, sometimes one of the issues that we get into is this group think, you know, this, this is the way it should be. And this is the way it is, but like thinking about your specific property and in its own right is the way to do it, you know, cause everything has to work here. Well, and that's, that's the, that's the culmination of a lot of the conversation we've had today, honestly, in that, Every property has a unique scenario, right? And that's, again, I reference back to that the one thing I've pulled from every place I've ever been, which is humility. That ties right into being judgmental and being being one of these people that shows up at a golf course and goes, well, that's, that's terrible. Like, why is it that way? Well, what's going on? You don't know what the unique circumstances are surrounding any one situation. Um, you don't have any integral knowledge of that you're literally a guy that showed up and starts looking at stuff and just starts judging things because you don't know what's going on every property is unique in its situation its challenges how it should be presented and i guess that's you know a lot of the guys that i've become friends with i mean again i reference like matthew wharton one of the things that we've always talked about is how as a superintendent you're really a caretaker of that property right the great caretakers of properties. You know, one of my mentors, one of the people I have immense amount of respect for is Jeff Marco at Cypress Point, the ultimate caretaker, right? He's responsible not only for the condition and the presentation of that golf course on a daily basis, but he's, he's responsible for golf history, a piece of art, right? It's his time in the history of, of, of that golf course, right? He's one of a handful of people that has had the opportunity to be a caretaker of a property that is that transcends golf. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than any of the members. It's bigger. That's that's a it's a it's a national treasure, right? And so Jeff is one of the most humble, kind, genuine people that I've ever met. Yet he, he sits atop a role you know, in charge of something that's just a masterpiece. And you go, the way he approaches it is such that it's just my time in history to take care of this treasure, you know? And I think that a lot of us look at it that way. We don't, we get caught up in our daily grind, but the bottom line is, is like literally here at Sharon Heights, this is just my stint in history to caretake for Sharon Heights and hopefully make it better than when I came. And if everybody thinks about it that way, it's like, it's like when you get up in the morning and if, really if you only have one goal, which is to just be a little bit better than you were yesterday, imagine how good the world would be. It's the same way in golf, right? Yeah. I think we, uh, we found our, 
our spot here. This would just be part one, you know? Who knows when part two will come out? Well, this was, uh, you know, we, we just covered, I feel like it was a, it was a very tied together uh, conversation around really a lot of common themes. But you're, you're active on, on social networks. People can find you. Your Twitter's cowboy. But you're you're the foremost cowboy. This is true. <laughs> so <laughs> a few a few hundred people a few hundred people will understand that. So uh, people can find you. You're at the turf Yoda, turf Yoda, right? Or just at, the uh, at, the the turf Yoda. And then on uh, Instagram, you're same. same. So people can find you there. You're you're active on there and. Uh, yeah, it's it's cool. It's how it's, I learned so much just following you guys. Every day, something. Yeah, I I, re- I remember the last time I saw Tully, I was like, "Hey, how's that?" Uh, he was testing out uh, ryegrass or something. Oh, Bermuda, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I asked him, I was like, "Hey, how's it going?" He goes, "You've been paying attention." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, of course, yes. you know. It's uh, but yeah, it's it's a great community. So people can find you there, and look forward to doing another one of these. Yeah, no, and I, I just thanks to you. This is a super cool opportunity, and and uh, we go back away, so it's it's super fun to be able to do this. And and uh, again, yet one more thing to humble me. So it's good. <laughs>